Good morning. This morning I'm reading from letters to my great-great-grandchildren, Autumn into Winter, Book 2. Monday the 9th of October 2017. This morning is a typical cold, damp October morning. The clocks have not gone back yet, as is the British custom. This will happen at the end of October. We will then have a little more light in the morning for a while. The Earth is moving now away from its nearest point from our Sun as it travels on its elliptical orbit. The practice of changing the time by moving the hour backwards or forwards at different parts of the year was started during the Second World War. It enabled farmers to have lighter early mornings, etc. We will be at the end of this month in line with the rest of Europe and on Greenwich Mean Time. In the spring, we changed to British summer time and the clocks move forward one hour. For those of you who haven't read my first letters to my great-great-grandchildren, summer into autumn, let me tell you a little about my family. I live in the Oxfordshire countryside at the foot of the children's with my partner David and our children. David and I both have children by previous relationships. I have Timothy and Leah and David has Joel and Anna. We also have our children Carla, Tom, Marshall, Johnty and Rosie. The other person who lives with us as family is Cynthia. Cynthia has learning disabilities and her mother and father are no longer alive. Cynthia lives with us under the shared life scheme run by the Oxfordshire Social Services. Rather than place people alone in supported living or in special homes, they seek out families who are willing to take in another member and include them in all family activities so they become an adopted member of the family, being loved and cared for in the same way as the rest of the family. It should be a lifetime commitment. By making it a forever placement, it gives a better sense of security and a sense of belonging to the person involved. Shared lives do look for temporary placements and respite care, which is what we did in the beginning, giving other people some respite from what can sometimes be a very tiring placement, particularly when the learning disability is severe. We are very blessed with Cynthia. She is a happy, cheerful individual who is always looking for ways to help people. Everybody knows Cynthia locally, and if you go shopping with her, it is quite an experience in popularity. Every shop that you go into, there is a hail of greeting. Hello, Cynthia. How are you, Cynthia? Because she always greets everyone warmly, she gets the same response. Maybe we should all be a little more like Cynthia, instead of walking past people in the street, with our heads down, looking at our shoes, missing everything that the world has to offer. Maybe we should greet everyone with a cheery smile and a warm hello. Cynthia has a home with us for as long as she wishes and for as long as she is happy. And up to now that seems and looks like a fair forever placement. The shared lives arrangement is something that David and I thoroughly recommend. It is a rewarding and enjoyable thing to do. Things are not always in perfect harmony, but that is family life. And we wouldn't have it any other way. Cynthia needs to know that whatever mood she's in, we still love her, and she'll always be family. Taking in someone into our home with a family as large as ours is, as we always say, just another potato in the pot. There is one other person who lives with us, 
have arrived and whom we regard as family, and a Snicky. Her skills with chickens and birds I immortalised in my first book in this series. Nikki lives in a little cottage in our garden, which we call the garden room. But she is in and out of the main house all the time, and is definitely one of us. As you can see, we are a large and unusual family. By and large, we try to live our lives doing the very minimum damage to the planet. And we believe if the planet, our beautiful green and blue orb, the third rock from the sun, as it has sometimes been described, is slowly dying, and the only way it can be saved starts with each individual. Laws, protests, rallies and government edicts have had little or no effect, and they have been going on since the 60s. It was on holiday this year at the Abbey in Devon that I had an epiphany and realised that unless it became a personal commitment, regardless of what anyone else was doing, it was never going to work. I heard Arosha speaking and I remembered God's words in Genesis and the idea of a Genesis movement began to form in my mind. I began to realise the stupor that we were in, or as I described in the first book of letters, the idea that all humanity was sleepwalking towards the precipice like lemons. What was needed was a personal commitment to God, regardless of what anyone else was doing. What has been happening up to now, it appears, is that everybody is waiting for someone else to do something. Everybody knows the problem and talks about the various environmental crises in hushed terms. They are waiting for movement and success in other directions, organisations, etc. In short, for someone else to do something. I remembered Genesis chapter 1, verses 25-30, and chapter 2, verse 18. God was instructing one person, Adam, to care for the earth, and be a good and faithful steward. One man carried the burden upon his shoulders, but God gave him precise instructions on how to do this, and how to live, and warnings of what not to do, and the consequences thereof is if he, Adam, did not listen and obey. Today we have fallen far short of that advice and we are beginning to suffer the penalty of our own self-destructiveness. Some eminent scientists believe that if we stop all bad practices now, we could turn the demise of this planet around in 40 years. Those same people believe that if we do not take serious action, we will not last another 100 years. The time is now for real action with no further delay. The world needs a silent movement that starts in the hearts and minds of men. I have called it the Genesis Movement. I wonder why the churches are so silent from the pulpit on this issue. But not anymore. This weekend, in our little church, I heard the first sermon that I have ever heard in the pulpit, exhorting us to become environmentally aware. It coincided with the finish of my last book of letters. And I thank God for that sign that seemed to say to me, keep going, Sheila, write another book. And so here I am doing just that, inviting you to peep into our lives and see our struggles and mistakes, our triumphs and discoveries. All good, as David often says. Arosha is an organisation that supports churches in becoming more environmentally minded. 
I have gone into greater detail in my first book about this amazing organisation and the work of Andy Lester and Andy Atkins. If you require more information, Arosha can be found online. If your church requires their help, they are there for you, with help, advice and literature. They have published many books on the subject, which make very good, if hair-raising reading. More about my books on the subject. They're simple little books about life in an Oxfordshire family and community. I've chosen to write them as a journal to my great-great-grandchildren, as it is this generation who will most be affected by our behaviour. It is mainly about our day-to-day life and what we hope to do in our small corner to change and repair the damage that we have already done, to restore and renew. It is about our successes and our failures, warts and all. At times it exposes our weaknesses and hopefully shows some of our strengths. We are determined to make a small difference and hope that others will do the same. This hopefully in time will make the big difference that is needed to turn around and repair all the damage this generation, our generation, has done to our world. We have believed for too long that mankind is the kingpin and that all else was created for our use and abuse. We now know that this world is bigger and so much more complicated and wondrous than that. Everything interacts and depends on each other living or inert thing. If something becomes extinct, we're in danger of collapsing. Our wonderful God has made an unimaginably beautifully designed creation, which we have dabbled with to our detriment. The Bible uses the word repent, which literally means to turn around, and this is exactly what we need to do now. We need to learn to do without new clothes every season, just because someone eager to exploit the poor and the rich dictates that the fashion has changed. Small children may be being exploited in India to make these clothes at a fraction of the cost that rich people in the West are being exploited to buy them at greatly inflated prices. I have come to love local charity shops. It is good to know that perfectly good and lovingly made clothes can be worn again and often again and that the proceeds are sent to help those areas of the world that need help most. My group of friends and I are happy when we receive a compliment for a garment that we are wearing. To reply, charity shop, bye. Many things can be beautifully and creatively upcycled and made new again or redesigned in some way. I left the close of my last book with a description of Harvest Supper and worship in our little community and one of David's lovely poems that he wrote on autumn. And as I write these words, that memory is still with me. David writes a lot of poems and songs, all meaningful and very beautiful. He and I both play the guitar, and the children are all learning various and sometimes multiple musical instruments. Music is such a big part of our lives. It is both emotionally challenging and evocative, We pretty much all play the piano after a fashion, except the two youngest who are now learning to. We have three pianos in and around the house. There is always the sound of someone making music somewhere, sometime. Carla is the wind instrument member of the family. As well as the piano, she plays the flute, clarinet and has an oboe, which she occasionally plays. Last term, Marshall, who is 16 and has just started college, taught the little ones a recorder. 
I homeschool the children. We have visiting tutors for maths and classics and at secondary level for Latin. In the meantime, I teach them Latin at primary level from a course called Maximus and Minimus, all about a cat and a mouse who live in a house with a Roman family at the time the Romans occupied Britain. The house was near Hadrian's Wall in a place called Villa Landra. I also teach them the rest of the curriculum, except for science practical, fun experiments and philosophy, which David teaches them, and IT, which Marshall teaches them. We have lots of appropriate visits and go to a local park once a week for exercise and sport, and once a week to the swimming baths. This morning, after our prayers and Bible reading, we had a period of reading which we do together, each taking it in turns to read two or three pages. We do this every morning, as the children had got very badly behind with their reading when they were in school. This was the main reason for removing them and homeschooling them, but it was also partly due to the high numbers of children in the classes. This morning followed the normal pattern until 10 o'clock. We then had milk and decided to do what we normally do on a Monday morning, which is to go to the woods nearby for some forest school and for a good old play amongst the leaves and trees and a few games of our old favourite, ditch sticks. We had originally planned to go to the River and Rowan Museum, which is local to us and will be a useful resource for our planned study of the River Thames. The Thames runs through quite nearby and we often spend a quiet afternoon in the summer months watching its lazy progress as it passes us on its onward journey until each reaches London and the estuary. We had to abandon for this week the trip to the River and Rowan Museum and go next Monday instead. There would not be enough time to do both and as Daddy was coming home at lunchtime we would rather have lunch with him than have lunch out and the museum could wait. So off we went to don boots and coats for our woodland adventure. We had an added bonus this morning as we strolled along finding interesting seed cases and the beginning of seed skeletons, we met a man walking his dog. He was naturally friendly and curious to find out why school-age children were running wild and free in the woods. We explained to him that we were homeschool and, and this was part of what we did and was timetabled into our curriculum on a Monday morning. He was very interested and thought it was a splendid way for the children to learn about nature, running free and climbing trees in the fresh air. He went on to point out to the children all of the trees and asked them if they knew what sort they were. I was greatly relieved that they gave most of the correct answers. He was very impressed with their knowledge. He explained what the seeds that Rosie had found were and which tree they had come from. He then told them a potty history of his childhood and the games he had played in the same ditch that we played in. Before he went, he left them with a caution to never light fires in the woods. He said that he noticed close by where he had walked his dog that somebody had recently done just that. They learned so much from this wise old stranger that we just happened upon in the woods. It reminded me of the old adage. I think that it is an African saying. It takes a village to raise a child. When we eventually reached home, there was just time for one more lesson and time to prepare lunch. David and Auntie Rachel arrived home at the same time. Auntie Rachel comes to lunch most days, but always on a Monday, because she teaches the children sewing and knitting on a Monday afternoon.
She was a home economics teacher all of her life until she retired and enjoys working with Johnny and Rosie and they love it too. I spent most of the afternoon after school putting the rest of the bulbs in. I think I should be doing this for some days now. In my last journal I talked about the big fire that we had in some of our outbuildings and trees which left our nut walk looking very bare on the ground. I bought a large quantity of bulbs and I am going to plant them in the nut walk. I am hoping that they will naturalise and who knows they may be still around in your time, 150 years or more in the future. I had an unexpected but very welcome friend call in this afternoon for a cup of tea and a chat. Her name is Vic and she's a very clever friend with two maths degrees. Up until now she has been teaching maths at a local school but now she's available to do extra maths with Jaunty and Rosie on a Tuesday or Thursday morning. I am absolutely delighted because she is a lovely, happy person and my children love her. Rosie especially loves her as she generally benefits from Vic's daughter's Daisy's lovely clothes. Daisy is a couple of years older than Rosie. It is part of our family effort to pass on whatever we no longer use or donate to charity and we always gratefully receive also. Vic and I spent a lovely afternoon chatting, mostly about our children and education. Vic has two boys and a girl, and her eldest boy was Marshall's best friend at school. Vic is also a member of our Wednesday morning group. At the moment it is becoming quite dark, and it is more difficult to write this. I shall now start to prepare our supper. Looking out of the musical window, it is clearly now autumn, and my poor, sick horse chestnut tree which has this virus that is affecting most of the horse chestnut trees in Britain, has finally let go of its leaves the winter, and its beautiful naked shape is outlined against the darkened sky. I really love this tree. It has the spirit of a survivor. Every spring it returns with its iconic sticky buds and pale green leaves that unfold like tiny umbrellas. Its lovely white with a tinge of pink and yellow, candle-like flowers which bloom in the month of May. When I was a child, we used to sing a ditty which went like this. The chestnut candles light again for those that died last year. It looks splendid and majestic all summer, even producing in September some conkers for the children to play the age-old game with. But suddenly, about the middle of August, the tree becomes very sick and the leaves wither and she appears to die. Many have made the mistake of felling their trees, believing that it had died, but left it will return the following year, as the old rhyme says. I'm told that the horse chestnut tree, which originated in the Balkans, was given its name because of the horseshoe-shaped scars left when the leaves drop off. I'm sure that the virus that we have had in the last few years, that have affected many of our different tree species, are our fault. The tree is a mighty long-lived piece of life and draws a lot of water from the earth and the lungs of the planet. If we stop and think about the job that it was designed to do, photosynthesis, just the exchange of carbon dioxide and oxygen, and what a wonderful design that is. God made sure that we had enough oxygen to keep us alive and we exchange it with what the plants also require to thrive. We should remember, though, it doesn't just absorb the carbon dioxide but all the other pollution that we create and becomes airborne and all the particulates that are released from the use of the internal combustion engine. 
My four books to you, my dear great-great-grandchildren, are all about us, one family, and their efforts to follow the genocide movement. I hope this movement spreads and you survive. More than that, I hope that your life and environment is more like God intended it to be. The alternative is too awful to contemplate. David is now home from work. Hungry faces are now appearing at the music room door. Lots of them. It's time to feed the 5,000. Large family, dogs, cats, rabbits, guinea pigs, chickens and fish, plus a new baby. Fish, that is. I have to confess, Nikki feeds the rabbits, guinea pigs and chickens when she gets home from work. David feeds the chickens in the morning. He is at present down in his new shed doing and mending. He has made some very innovative hooks and hangers for his tools, which he is now fixing onto the walls of the shed.